Salturot. You're very welcome to Glower, our podcast here at RC Connolly, the James Connolly Visitor Centre on the Falls Road in Belfast. Each series of this podcast focuses on a quote from the writings of James Connolly, and we all ask our guests to reflect on that quote as we explore what it is that they do and what motivates them in their walks of life. So, join us as we explore the writings of James Connolly and the relevance they have to us today. Gee, Bogus Falcher, I say Glower Egg RSC Connolly. You're right, welcome back to this week's episode of Glower here at the James Connolly Visitor Centre on the Falls Road in Belfast. Today's guest is Grania Taggart, who works for Amnesty, um, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome her here to RSC Connolly today. You're right, welcome, Grania. Thank you very much. Um, so, to uh, just to recap on this week's podcast and the series, sorry, of podcasts. Our quote for this series is a James Connolly quote from his writing The Reconquest of Ireland in 1915 where he wrote None so fitted to break the chains as they who wore them, none so well equipped to decide what is a fetter. In its march towards freedom the working class of Ireland must cheer on the efforts of those women who feeling on their souls and bodies the fetters of the ages have arisen to strike them off. So quite a powerful quote and really talking about you know women um, fighting for their rights um, as relevant 1915, I would argue as it is today, but we'll, we'll come to that point in a wee second, Grainne. Um First of all, tell us uh, a wee bit about yourself and what it is that you do. So um, I'm the Deputy Director of Amnesty International UK in the North. Um, as part of that, I manage our campaigns across a wide range of areas. Um, I'm a media spokesperson for the organisation and also manage our political engagement. But all of that, I suppose, is a nice way of saying that ultimately I'm about driving human rights change here. It's something that I am exceptionally passionate about, you know, being from West Belfast, you know, and growing up in the, the context of the rights struggles that we have here locally. Um, it's something that has always resonated with me. And I think for me, um, it's about that fight for justice and equality across all spheres um, of our life. So I have worked in Amnesty now for about 13 years which is a bit longer than actually Cardi admit because I just realised how that ages me. But um, prior to that, I was involved in advocacy for um, disabled people's rights. And also before that, I worked in a combination of education and also the social economy sector. But for me, um, my home, if you like, is definitely in the rights sector. And it's about sort of promoting that rights, respect and future, which is one that we, we will all thrive in and will be the benefit of us all. And it's something that's so um, very much, as they say in Irish, male and football, it's really kind of relevant and, and uh, topical at the minute is, is different types of rights, be it language rights or women's rights, um, or indeed in terms of the legacy issues that, that are ongoing. Do you think it is something that people are more aware of now, um, say in the last sort of five to ten years? Um, or how do you think things have developed here in the North in terms of awareness, I suppose? So, I mean, in some ways, yes, I think in the past five to 10 years, there has been a real concentration of efforts among sort of grassroots activists, as well as civil society organizations like ourselves to really um, tackle head on and confront what were, you know, human rights abuses that had been persisting for too long in our society. But it, it obviously goes back much further than that. I mean, if we consider the, the conflict, you know, obviously here, um, I think there are a lot of the rights issues that are only now today and in recent years being addressed that if you like were either overshadowed or sort of cast aside in the context, obviously, of the conflict. And I suppose we are as a society, I think, increasingly one that is rights aware, but also one that is 
um, fighting on a daily basis to get to that vision I think that we hold collectively of an Ireland where we are all equal and where there is that um, is it that upholding of rights so language rights as you say is obviously um, a good example you know a good case in point we're obviously just seeing the bill obviously going through now and that has had to be legislated for through Westminster I have to say that I think that is again a damning indictment of our local um, political failures to actually address um, some of these very fundamental rights issues and it's again we have to pay credit to the Irish rights and the Irish speaking community here who have really drove that change and it's often what we see you know obviously like across the side of here for my role and for the work you know that I do at the minute um, and in recent years I was really privileged to have played um, my role and my part in overturning what was a near total abortion ban in the north here it was one where women here were living and existing in a in a very cruel reality where we had a law that was policing our bodies and ultimately denying us healthcare that our counterparts in these islands, with the exception obviously of the South until we had repeal, um, could take for granted. And from my point of view, you know, as a woman and as a rights activist and obviously in my, my formal role within Amnesty, it was one that I want, that I, I suppose that I was just exceptionally passionate you know about that I really I could see the wrong that was being committed I could see that we were forcing women on lonely journeys for healthcare that they were entitled to here at home and very quickly I think you know in recent years certainly from Amnesty's point of view when we launched our campaign you know it was about removing those barriers to that healthcare so it was about obviously doing that through changing the law but also very practically around challenging the stigma you know in the healthcare system etc you know also that existed in in other parts of society because we didn't we hadn't been having those conversations or there had been happening you know amongst you know grassroots you know where they were trying to push those conversations but um when i first came to this work it wasn't on the political agenda you know our politicians were happy to ignore the reality of women um traveling every week you know to access this healthcare. but um through that combination of working with women who had been impacted by the law so women like sarah yurt um and others we were able to force that on the political agenda and ultimately, you know, overturn the law and get one that actually get a new law that respects and protects choice. And we are all the better, obviously, for having that law in place. But the fight, as you know, isn't over. We're now pushing for services in place. Yeah, no, far from it. And I find it really interesting because what you're saying there is, is that it came as many uh, as m much political change does. It came from a grassroots campaign um, in terms of your own kind of experience over the years and working on those different do you find that is often the case whether it's women's rights and their access to healthcare or language rights it's often certainly that i see repeated yeah have you seen that and the strength of, of communities and of, of um groups and organizations coming together do you think that that is very much the case or would you agree on that point yeah i, I do very much i mean it is that sort of strength in numbers and i think you know for a lot of the change the positive change that we've seen in our society in recent years it has been driven by that grassroots activism in combination with, you know, if you like, organisations that have, for want of a better way of putting it, that more formal role in driving rights. From my point of view, you know, I'm an activist, you know, and it was for me, it was about working with grassroots as well as sort of like the, the knowledge that I have, the professional knowledge that I have in terms of challenging um, laws that are restricting rights, both through the courts, but also through our political structures, you know, there and obviously through the various international avenues available also but um so i think you know right across the island on this issue in particular 
with repeal, if you like, it added momentum. You know, in the north, it really concentrated minds and that efforts on, you know, that we were suddenly the only part of these islands that was completely isolated. Brought that legal pressure. Exactly. It was that pressure and that, you know, further spotlight on our barbaric law and the very um, restrictive regime that women, you know, were living under here. So um, when the institutions, our political institutions here collapsed, it was very clear to me that there was an opportunity here to to push this through at Westminster and that's ultimately what we succeeded in doing and not only to overturn the law so that abortion this form of health care was lawful but also we're the only part of these islands that has this uh, this form of health care decriminalized because what we saw were um, women who were being prosecuted in relation to this health care um, so it was really essential that we we had that decriminalized apart from the you know the very practical um, reason it was needed, you know, because obviously we had women being prosecuted, but it was also just about, you know, that realization and as a society challenging that stigma and sending that clear message that said, This is healthcare, it's not a criminal justice matter. Why are we hauling women through the courts for around a form of healthcare? This is something that obviously um, they are entitled to. So, um, yes, definitely the grassroots, um, the grassroots activism is essential, and as I say, it's not just a relation to reproductive rights. But it's also in the change that we've seen in a whole other host of issues and areas. Yeah, and, and I suppose that leads as well in, into the quote for this series where, for me, um, and I'll just read it again for, for the audience, so none so fitted to break the chains as they who wear them, none so well equipped to decide what is a fetter, and it's marched towards freedom, the working class of Ireland must cheer on the efforts of those women who, feeling on their souls and bodies the fetters of the ages, have arisen to strike them off. For me, and I mean Connolly's written that in 1815, that's really about us not kind of siloing off different rights issues or whatever it might be, you know, a fight for freedom or a fight for, for, for um, as, as, as he calls it, the march towards freedom or um, any sort of rights. It's very relevant today. How, do, you, do you find the quote relevant, Grainne? How, how does it kind of speak to you, I suppose? I mean, it's as relevant today as it was then because we we have to think about where we are as a society and if we focus specifically on sort of like the role of women mm-hmm. and sort of like freeing ourselves of those chains that have sort of held us back, obviously, for, for decades and even for centuries, you know, we still have a long way to go in terms of getting that full equality. So reproductive justice is obviously one um, one particular issue, but it's not just that. It's about, you know, look at sort of everyday life. It's around childcare, where the burden of obviously care and responsibility etc still fall it's around you know that everyday misogyny and everyday sexism that many of us come up against you know either professionally or you know just in our lives it's also I think about really challenging um, the role of women in society and how that has been understood you know obviously through the decades because I just still think there are too many who um, try to restrict and limit that role to those more traditional you know roles around uh, you know understanding a care and responsibilities in those points but like, you know, I have encountered everyday sexism, I'm sure, you know, we all have. And the fact that that still exists shows us that we have a long way to go. But it's not just that. I mean, if we consider like another issue like legacy, you know, for example, and it's an issue that I'm working on at the moment and the, um, the role of women in the conflict here. That is an issue that has historically been massively overlooked because women were the backbone of our communities here. You know, particularly if we consider, you know, periods in time like internment, etc. and the role of women you know then but even just throughout you know the conflict women were to the forefront but sometimes the narrative hasn't always obviously matched up so um at the minute we see this absolutely heinous 
you know, um, bill that has come out of Westminster, which is effectively about closing down paths to justice for victims here in relation to the conflict. So at a time when women and others and so many um, families have been fighting for the justice that they're entitled to. Here we have the UK government coming in and basically saying, no, we want to draw a line in the sand and basically remove um, all of the legal remedies available to you so that you never get justice. Now, that is utterly obscene. Um, we've seen, even if you take cases like, you know, the Bella Murphy inquest, we have saw actually how, how powerful um, it is for families to get that measure of justice, even if it's, you know, decades after the event. It doesn't matter. The passage of time does not diminish the hurt, nor does it remove the fact that these rights abuses have taken place and need to be accounted for. So um, the quote is, is very much, you know, still relevant today. And I think, you know, what we are seeing, to go back to an earlier point, is communities increasingly coming together to challenge these rights abuses the legacy bill the troubles bill um being one case in point because we have seen right across the community on a cross community basis the frankly not only the strong objection but the revulsion to actually what's being um proposed here and it's utterly right that that has been the reaction to it so if you like it is one of many fights rights fights that we're having at the minute and of course we can't overlook, as I say, the essential role of women, both in the conflict and in peace building today in our societies. And it's something you touched on briefly. It is often a story that's untold and, and just supposed to play the devil's advocate a wee bit. I, I, I find certainly in, in kind of my own life that very often the women are, are less willing to be vocal about their role and, and, and what it was that they went through because it's, it's sort of a vicious circle. Ironically, it was ignored for so long, so it, it's very difficult. Do you find that uh, women within our communities uh, across the North are becoming maybe a bit more confident in, in their voice and in their rights and, and understanding their rights? Because, I don't know, it certainly seems from a, from a you know, from a, an outside perspective, it's maybe the wrong word, but that people are becoming more aware of what, they, what their rights are. Yeah, I mean, I think if you consider, you know, sort of, you know, again, going back decades, centuries, but also in the current day, the systemic oppression of women, you know, that has obviously sent um, a message to women that your voice should be discounted, that the vo your voice doesn't matter um, to the same extent. And absolutely, you know, particularly in recent decades, we're seeing, you know, the challenge to that um, and particularly today in relation to a whole host of issues. But, you know, we still have... Uh, we are still living in a society where we're not equal. You know, we are still living in a society where there are very significant barriers to, for example, participation in political and public life. You know, and we see, um, if we consider issues of, you know, um, misogyny online, you know, the abuse that women, particularly women in those public facing roles, whether it's politics or another public facing role, I know even, you know, through my own work, you know, the abuse and the barrage of abuse so that actually when you use, for example, social media platforms to um, extend the reach of your voice, if I can put it like that, that, you know, invariably you might put out a tweet on, you know, whatever the issue could be the most mundane of issues, but you will have a barrage of mainly male voices that will come in on top of that tweet or whatever that post is, um, ultimately with a view to silence you know, trying to sort of, you know, and some women, you know, because that is a very, very difficult thing to, you know, to be able to receive an end of. And some women, you know, what we see is that they tend to then self-censor, you know, so they tend to then sort of censor their voices. Yeah. Um, I'm not one of those, you know, um, <laughs> as you maybe guessed, but it doesn't mean that you don't feel sometimes in your work when you're doing this, you know, the impact of that abuse. 
But my response to that is, that's all the more reason to challenge. I was going to say, because your role is quite public facing and it deals with a, a lot of issues that make some people very uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, I, you know, to me, if it's making kind of conversations uncomfortable um, when it's about rights, as you say, it's all the more reason to have them. Have you, and, and, and you don't have to answer this, have you ever on a, on a more personal level, has it ever put you off? Because it must be difficult um, when it's, it's, I would imagine, regularly consistent. You were mentioning, for example, uh, people in political life. I know there were a number of instances in the recent election yeah. um, where largely, if not all, um, those who were getting really horrible abuse online were women um, and you didn't yeah. see it in the same way. So, so yeah. has it ever put you off? I mean, let me just say on that particular point, because I think in the last election campaign, we saw some particularly nasty, you know, sort of vitriol that was aimed at um, at women candidates, at female candidates. And I think, you know, again, that in itself sort of tells the story and reiterates the point that we've already mentioned about those barriers to political life, because you have to have a thick skin. You, it, that shouldn't be the case. You should never be experiencing that, but you have to then develop a thick skin um, to obviously deal, um, deal with that. I suppose when you ask that, there's there's a particular example that jumps out in my mind that sort of, it stayed with me a bit, not to the extent where it deferred, uh, sort of put me off or deterred me from the work that I'm doing, but it's it sort of did stop me in my tracks and make me think and go, oh, you know, that's how people view it, which was um, earlier, much earlier in the abortion campaign, I was heavily pregnant with my first son. And um, it didn't occur to me actually to connect the two that I was talking about abortion whilst I was obviously um pregnant myself because for me it wasn't about me you know motherhood's a choice you know and so I, I genuinely didn't connect the two and when I was actually on maternity leave I bumped into someone who was quite senior in public life and therefore should have known better and I'm not going to name them it was a man um who said to me oh yes and as a throwaway comment a lot of people were saying you didn't have a heart for talking about abortion whilst you were pregnant yourself um and I sort of you know it took me aback a bit because it made me realise that in some of those, you know, professional circles that people weren't better educated, you know, that way. And that actually, you know, when they said that, it, it gave me sort of like pause or, oh, is that how it came across? Um, I didn't care because the change that I was fighting for wasn't about me. It was for other women who needed that health care. But I suppose it did remind me that, you know, people struggled with the visual of a pregnant woman advocating for other women's choice. Yeah. Um, and I suppose you do encounter some examples like that and also you know we've all been in the room where we're the only woman you know in the room and you know um, <laughs> tends to be you know obviously a lot of men and the tendency of some to try and either speak over you or you know make a particular point of challenging you know etc and um again it never washes with me if anything it makes me dig you know my heels in you know sort of um more and make sure that the, my voice is heard but I think part of that goes back to you know my upbringing as well and having you know um very strong women in my life like mom and Teresa and others who you know brought me up with that rights you know respecting um rights respecting rights challenging you know way but i'm mindful that not everybody has had that experience and i think you know for others um i can see how they could be easily put off you know absolutely and and you definitely have all been in those rooms um, and I'm sure anyone listening, uh, many of the women listening will, will have been in the same position. Um, I suppose just to draw back then for, for our final point, you know, this quote's so relevant, it is so relevant today and I think we'll both agree on that point. Um, I suppose going forward, 
it's very important um, and I found it kind of in this role which is sort of public um, that it's actually very important for visibility of women you know they talk about you can't see it you can't be it um, yeah. can I go on forward you're going to continue with the work that you're doing what's what's the plan for for the future I mean there's so many issues you know that I'm obviously working on at the minute to address this trouble spill is obviously you know um, a, a big priority of mine at the minute there's other um, big threats coming down the tracks in terms of the UK government's plans to scrap the Human Rights Act. And the reason, whilst that sounds, you know, to some people they might think, oh, what's that? And that's just like a piece of legislation. Actually, that is the probably one of the most significant pieces we have of legislation for your everyday person to challenge government and hold any public authority to account for any rights breaches. So we really shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the UK government are trying to do away with that now and replace it with the British Bill of Rights, which will be the first in history that actually diminishes rights as opposed to promotes and protects them. Um, but for me, um, that point of visibility is really essential. You know, I will continue and obviously in my role to do all I can to obviously make sure that um, the work that I'm doing and that the women that I work with are visible in relation to it. But it's not just about sort of like the public visibility in the sense of, you know, sort of through the media and those more public facing roles. It's about, you know, even as basic as like conversations around the kitchen table, you know, conversations around the dinner table. We all have a role to play in challenging the very harmful stereotypes, I think, that have held women back. So whether it's, you know, a conversation around the kitchen table or sort of like challenging those everyday encounters of sexism and misogyny when they come up, you know, uh, we all have a role to play in that. And I suppose if one thing from this, I would just encourage as many women as possible to challenge in their everyday to the best of their ability. Garmina Mwaga, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. An interesting conversation that I'm sure um, will, will interest loads of our listeners. So Garmina Mwaga, thank you. Thank you.